got the idea that they're processing more frames per second than I am. You know, their brain is just just has a better processor than I do, than mine is in terms of being able to physically process imagery and what's going on at that point in time. So maybe I'm processing 20 frames a second and they're at 100 or 200. I have no idea. And one of them was Chet Phillips who drove for me. And I'd drive around the track and the, and the car and uh, or, or he'd go out to test a car and he didn't even finish a lap. He'd go out of the pits, run the track, come back into the pits without even finishing the lap. And then I say, Chet, what's going on with the car? And he says, well, when I go into turn one, I, I get on the brakes and the nose goes down and the right's going down a little more than the left. And then the right rear shock is uh, doesn't have enough rebound stiffness. And then, you know, as I say, turn in, it's pushing a little. And, you know, he tells me these eight or ten things that happened just as he turned into turn one. And, and I knew when I turned into turn one, if you ask me what happened, it's like, well, I made it and didn't crash, right? <laughs> Welcome to Activist NNT, a podcast about real-world economics, including modern money theory, and how life changes when you discover it. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Today I talk with Warren Mosler about how his ideas for MMT partially came from a love of tinkering and more broadly, a desire to understand complex systems. He starts by talking about how at the age of eight, he unknowingly built the fundamental elements of modern computers using nothing more than wires, batteries, light bulbs, and soup cans. As an adult, he built race cars driven by professional drivers. He also designed and prototyped a 60-passenger ferry that was built and is still in use today because it's much more durable and efficient than what came before it. We then talk about what came between when he played chess and bridge during high school. Like economics, these games are purely man-made systems of rules which are decided on by a collective. Unlike economics, no game is used as justification to craft or not craft policy desperately needed by millions. Warren talks about how he chose to learn the rules of these games thoroughly and to play them very well, but not dedicate the time required to reach the top echelons of professional players. Towards the end of today's episode, Warren gives his detailed view of the causes of the OPEC oil crisis, which he witnessed firsthand while searching for his first job fresh out of college. Next week in part two, Warren answers several patron questions and we end with a very interesting discussion about the poor interface between government and its citizens and the possible causes of it. If you like what you hear, then I hope you might consider becoming a monthly patron of Activist MMT. Patrons get super early access to almost every episode, and they also get the opportunity to ask my academic guests questions like next week. 
and they support the development of my large and growing collection of Learn MMT resources, among other MMT things. To become a patron, you can start by going to patreon.com slash activist MMT. Every little bit helps a little bit, and it all adds up to a lot. Thanks. And now, on to my conversation with Warren Mosler. Enjoy. Um, hello, how are you? Yeah. Good, thank you. Good. Just got back from uh, working out in a tennis court, so now I'm taking it easy. You do that every, every, you do that regularly? Yeah, every day. Yeah, seven days a week. Seven days a week. Okay, that's, that's yeah. pretty regular. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right, great. Um, so, uh, my idea for this is to try and get an idea of like where the ideas came from to a deeper sense than I think is public right now. Okay. Um, and then in, in hour two, we're, we're going to focus on uh, lots of patron questions that I got right. for you. So, yeah. um, I, tr- I tried so to, I, yeah, I tried to address that in the, uh, my, uh, seven deadly innocent frauds book. You know, that was I wrote that in 2010 uh, in front of an election. So I'm not sure I can remember all of it, but I'll, I'll do the best I can. Okay. Well, 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 we have we have plenty to choose from. So sure, sure, we should be fine. Um, okay. Okay. So uh, thank you for doing this. You came. You tinkered when you were young, and you give you give some hints of that in your book. Um, and I was wondering if you could give a couple of examples of memories of tinkering when you were on the younger side um, to, you know, kind of where that came from and, and, you know, what drove you to do that and, and what did you get out of that? So I remember playing with batteries and nails and wires and making electromagnets and then making like a Morse code type of thing Hmm. uh, where I could send a message from my clicker, which I made uh, from a piece of um, maybe a soup can or something my mother had, and I'd cut it off somehow and uh, bend it off. And uh, and then it would, yeah, I could send a message remotely for a couple of feet because I had a couple of feet of wire and uh, to a nail with another uh, piece of can on above it like a flap and it would click when I pushed when I connected the wires on one side the other side would click uh, and you know then I remember setting it up as a relay where uh, that clicking on top of the nail would actually close another circuit so I could make one circuit control another circuit just just for fun I guess I don't know where I got the ideas but um, you know I remember working with electricity that way fairly young age, maybe eight or 10 years old or something like that. And I, I somehow I got uh, from there to uh, my parents got me a sh- shortwave radio kit. And so I uh, made my own antenna. I got some wire, went out in the backyard and hung it between two trees and tapped it. And uh, I would winding coils and things like that to pick up different frequencies. And uh, I could there were a lot of uh, transmissions out there, so I could sit there with my little crystal radio and pick up Radio Moscow and Voice of the Andes and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I, re- I remember my father picking, said, what are you listening to? And I said, Radio Moscow, and I gave him the 
earphone and he listens to it and he says, I don't want you listening to that stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so uh, he, he was just half kidding. And, uh, and at some point in there, I remember like taking apart lawnmowers that were no longer functioning and using the motors to uh, power a little mini bike type of thing, a bike frame with some small wheels on each side. And I bolt on a gear. I don't know where I got the gears and the chains, probably from the bicycle. Electric or gasoline? It was was gasoline. It was a real motor, ran off the camshaft. I remember that. And uh, we didn't have the, you know, I didn't have any money to get anything actually welded. So I would just bolt things together, which they didn't hold up very well. You know, you, after four or five minutes of driving around, something would fall apart. I'd have to mm-hmm. Re- mm-hmm. redo it all. So, mm-hmm. uh, so yeah, you know, I used to tinker like that for sure. Erector sets. I had an erector set. I used to build things with. Mm. Uh, uh-huh. uh, do you use electricity? Did you do? You, did you get hurt? I didn't get like injured, but I got shocked more than once. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to avoid it, but if I got a shock, it didn't bother me, but I didn't deliberately shock myself. Okay. Um, <laughs> we had some kind of an old electric train. I remember a transformer and a couple of train cars going around a track that we used to play with. I had a brother who was a year and a half younger, so he'd you know, hang around with me doing this stuff. Hmm. Can you talk about how your parents supported or encouraged or were frustrated by your habit? They were not interested, particularly. I mean, they certainly were happy to see me occupied and doing things. And if I did make something, they were kind of took a look at it or something like that. But they didn't have any, uh, certainly no emotional involvement in, in the process or anything like that. But they weren't um, they weren't against it. But they weren't particularly supportive. As long as I wasn't spending any money, they were okay. And you weren't like destroying their stuff. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> no, and I would fix things around the house for them now and then. They, hmm. they were not very um, mechanical oriented or, uh, you know, I remember them calling a TV repairman and found out the TV had, you know, the plug had fallen out of the wall or something like that. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. I bet you. So you fixed that for them. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I could have. <laughs> <laughs> they'd, they'd ask me, I could have fixed that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, but they supported you. I mean, they, 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 you know, they, they obviously they, they didn't discourage you. They didn't. They didn't discourage, discourage me. Um, again, as long as I wasn't spending any money, they were. It was okay with them. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. So, so that's what you tinkered with as a kid, and then as an adult, you tinkered with cars and boats, and and what were yeah. and you you were an engineering major too, which we'll talk about later. But right. Like, so that never left you. So the 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 physical right. tinkering never left you. So what was between the you know the stuff when you were eight and the and the boats and the cars? Like what what did you tinker with between those two? Uh, I not much. I I don't remember a lot of th- anything in between those. I didn't start with cars until I had made some money. I, um, I, you know, I just, I just don't recall anything from that. Even later in high school, I, I don't think I was doing very much that I could but remember. Some, so. But you were, but there was some interest in it. That, was there something that you followed well, or, or, you know, in high school, I learned to play chess, which oh. is kind of, which is kind of the same thing. So in my junior year, I, 
started playing. I, I had known how to move the pieces, but I'd never played, you know, even half seriously before that. And uh, mm-hmm. joined the chess club and turned out to be, you know, good at it. So I, uh, we got a team together and, you know, we won every match that year. And oh, wow. I, I was, uh, I played either first or second, uh, depending on whether we'd be black or white, because my, uh, the other teammate was um, a good player, but he was better uh, with white than with black. So, uh, which goes first? Um, yeah. So, if we were the home team, then um, the number one guy might play uh, be black. The visiting team might get white or something like that. White makes okay. the first move. Okay. Okay. And then if, if we were away on a game, then it would be the other way around. So I. I, I played black. He was, I, you know, I could I could play with him. I didn't have any problem with that. But he was just better with white than black for whatever reason. And uh, we won all every match in the state, so that was good. I don't think we I don't think we lost any games. And then I kind of lost interest in that at the uh, end of the year because I, you know I realized what it would take to get from being you know a pretty good high school player to a an a, anything better than that. And, you know, it's diminishing returns. It takes more and more hours to make fewer and fewer games. And mm-hmm. it's all kinds of work on history of moves and going through games and books and studying yeah. openings and mid games. We recently I, watched the queen, the queen's gambit. So I, yeah, <laughs> I know yeah. a little bit. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because there are a lot of things in there that weren't right you know, about chess. Oh, and really? works. But yeah. Yeah. I thought it, it was good. It was better than most, that I've seen, but that's what brought all those memories back was watching that and going through it. Really? Uh, Can you give one example of what was wrong with it? Um, I can't remember. It was a couple of years ago that I saw this. It was just tech, just, yeah, just technical things and what they like. Well, well, historical, technical, technical. Okay. Yeah. Technical, technical about the game and, you know, the way they were thinking through it and, and, things they did to win and things like that. It doesn't generally doesn't work at all that way, but it was, it was, it was, it was pretty good. And I did, I went to that club matches like she did maybe once or twice. And it turned out I was about a 1200 or 1250 type of player, which was pretty good. But the masters, the betters were like 1800. And I just didn't have the energy to put in the effort to get there. I, I guess I didn't have felt like, like what would the point be? And uh, and it was interesting to be a top chess player. And I think they mentioned it in there. Uh, the, the profile was you had to. It was only it was male, and you had to have a a uh, intense hate for your father. <laughs> and that was like a hundred percent of the profile for all the master top ch- tennis play, uh, tennis players for the uh, <laughs> chess players. And so I certainly, you know, I wasn't going to. I didn't fit that mold, so I didn't feel like I could be any better than the top players. Hmm. So there didn't seem to be any reason to keep going. I, I knew enough to play well recreationally. I can still go out if one of the kids or grandkids starts playing chess and they want me to play. I can, you know, I can hold my own. But okay. uh, I, if I come across somebody who's, who's you know, um, who puts time into it and is a serious player, they, I'm not going to be able to beat them. Well, I don't know if this question makes sense, but like how yeah. – f- I, I know how to play – the moves i do not yeah. i have no interest in trying to like you know think ahead because you have to obviously you have to think ahead. right right right, right. um um and actually just coincidentally I'm, i just taught yeah. my 12 year old how to play on yeah. 
I just taught my 12 year old how to play and he, he, he gets the moves, but it's like, I don't know if this question makes sense, but how far could you think ahead? Do you, was it a certain amount of moves or some? Well, it, it, to be any good, you had to, you had to have already thought ahead five moves on any possible moves that might come out of the first 20. So, you know, in the first move I've already, before I sat down, I already knew like what the, what the openings were. And so you'd start with a king pawn or something. I'd, I, I know my options. I do another king pawn, and then I you move a bishop or a knight or something. I, I I'm looking. F- I know what's happens four or five moves from that. You know, it's, you know, if, you know. I play this, then you're going to play that. What you do is you, you need to know your opponent's best move, three or four moves ahead. You don't need to know every move, just his best move. So if I do this, your best move is to do that, and then if I then I, if I do this, your next then your best move is to do that. So I'm always thinking through what your best move is. And then if you do something else, I, I should have an advantage to be able to win in, you know, 10 or 15 moves. Uh, and then, then you have to figure things out from, you have to be able to think ahead on your own after somebody hasn't made the best move or makes, you know, an obvious mistake move, uh, then, then you're, then you're kind of on your own and you're thinking ahead on every move. But if they're making their best move, you already know what their best move is. Mm. And, and so you're, you're working against that. Wow, interesting. So, so was there yeah. aside from the technical errors in the in the, the Queen's Gambit, was there anything that like kind of stuck out to you of like that that no, that regular viewers wouldn't have gotten? Um, there were there were a couple of things, but they're nothing nothing seriously important. Okay. And, uh, yeah, and just the idea that there was a woman there was peculiar. I'm not certainly not against it or anything, but it just never has fit the profile. And if you look at the top, I don't know. Women, a female chess player, she might be 100 in the world or 200 in the world or something. And of course, very good. It could beat me easily, you know, with, with her <laughs> eyes closed playing 10 of me at once. But that's that level is what it is. It's uh, so, and I don't know why, but there is something going on with the game. So, anyway, after that, the next year I started playing bridge. I'd never played bridge before. Oh, and we, okay. start, we started a bridge club and we played well. And I got up to, you know, we were playing contract bridge and, uh, same thing happened where you get, I got to a level where I'm good enough to know the game well and play well, but recognizing the top bridge players in the world are, uh, you know, uh, thousands of hours at, you know, of work to get there. And I just didn't have any interest in that. Um, I, I, you know, I joined the AV club and as a freshman, maybe. So I'd go around showing movies for teachers who either didn't want to, or would have problems operating the projector. So I, so I guess that's part of the same thing, hmm. and uh, I like doing that. And uh, took a woodworking course. I didn't hmm. have the real skills for that to play in a board perfectly straight, but I knew how it worked and what it was about. And, and uh, so I, I guess I was, you know, tangent generally. In, did I say that right? Uh, involved in tinkering type of things like that which chess and bridge is kind of the same thing as, as something mechanical. Um, a couple questions, if I may. Yeah. And one, the first one yeah. is, uh, oh, okay. Yeah. My first question, you, you seem to, and I can, I can kind of relate to this, that you can, you seem to want to know how to play well, but you, but the, to go farther and to, you know, to win at chess competitively, profitably 
um, you know, that's beyond the level of what you're interested in, but you understand yeah. the, uh, you know, like whatever, 90% of what it takes to be a chess player. You know, these, these yeah. guys who profit off of it, they, they spend 90% of their time on that final 10%, for example. So, right, right, right. Or it's really that final 1%, but yes, oh. that's true. Okay. Okay. Um, well, that, that happened in car racing too. You know, when I started racing, uh, I got to a point where I was pretty good, but there were other people who were just a tenth of a second a lap ahead of me. You know, and after ten laps, I'm a second behind, which is sixty or miles an hour is quite a ways. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I could just never catch them. And it just they'd either started younger, or they were uh, had more time in, or they the reflexes were slightly better, or their timing slightly better. And I just didn't have it uh, physically. Uh, now, if I had put in instead of racing once a month or twice a month, if I'd been out every day on the track, maybe I would have gotten to that level, but I wasn't about to put that kind of effort in. So I was good enough to be reasonably competitive. I, you know, if one of the top guys didn't show up, I could win a race or two here and there. And I, uh, I, I knew I got to know about the cars, which was another, which was important to me, whether they were handling right, what needed to be done to make them handle correctly. So, but that, that's another example of not taking the, the time it takes to get over the top. But that's by choice. You you choose to yeah. reach a certain level, and then that's okay. Yeah. And well, yeah. I, I came up with this idea that there are people who process more frames per second. It's like if you tell ten kids to jump, you know, one or two of them jump higher than everybody else, and then they you start training them, and then they become the high jump. They get better, and they become the high jump champions. Or hundred kids run the track, one or two will be faster than everybody else, and then they they have to start working to get to the very highest levels. Uh, and um, so I, I got this idea from my race because I, I knew the, the drivers who were very good. And I got the idea that they're processing more frames per second than I am. You know, their brain is just just has a better processor than I do, than mine is in terms of being able to physically process imagery and what's going on at that point in time. So maybe I'm processing 20 frames a second and they're at 100 or 200. I have no idea. And one of them was Chet Phillips who drove for me. And I'd drive around a track and the, and the car, and uh, or, or he'd go out to test a car, and he didn't even finish a lap. He'd go out of the pits, run the track, come back into the pits without even finishing the lap. And then I say, Chet, what's going on with the car? And he says, Well, when I go into turn one, I, I get on the brakes, and the nose goes down, and the right's going down a little more than the left, and then the right rear shock is uh, doesn't have enough rebound stiffness. And then you know, I say, Turn in, it's pushing a little. And, you know, he tells me these eight or 10 things that happened just as he turned into turn one. And, and I knew when I turned into turn one, if you ask me what happened, it's like, well, I made it and didn't crash, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, but he had this ability to process all these frames per second. I remember once we were at a racetrack at Nelson Ledges and it was a, we, were, we were having a drink afterwards and there was a car race machine where the, the track kind of spins around vertically. It was a very primitive one. And you move this car left and right to try and keep it on the track. Oh, I know exactly what and you're all, talking about. Yeah, and all these guys are playing and they're the getting scores. The world moves. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, they're getting scores like 120 or 130. And Chet's sitting there. I say, you can go try it. He goes, nah. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> he uh, finally said, okay, okay, I'll try it. So he puts his quarter in and he's looking at it totally bored. His hands are a blur. He gets like 300 points and says, <laughs> it just didn't interest him. And he walked over and sat down. <laughs> can I stop now, please? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I'm sure that thing was going by him. It, to me, what would have been a crawl, right? Mm-hmm. But 
what I, what I saw as a thing going by fast was a crawl. Hmm. And, you know, then I, t- I remember talking to Rick Mears. I got to talk to him once. He had set the record at Indy for the fastest lap. It was like 240 miles per hour or something. Hmm. And a couple of the guys were asking him about it. He says, well, you know, when I turned into turn one, uh, you know, the wheel, it was, you know, as I was, uh, you know, feeling the steering wheel, it was, it was pushing just a little bit. So I think it might have had an extra mile an hour in there. Okay. Here's a guy at 240 mile, not miles an hour yeah. going into turn one noticing this. This guy yeah. had all the time in the world in turn one. And so it's just a faster processor. And as they get older, the processor slows down. So they have these Formula One racers, races for uh, X drivers. And for every 10 years older they get, they're like a half a second a lap slower. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, still a lot faster than you and I. But, but uh, it's just their processor slowing down. Ted Williams said he could see the ball hit the bat. And they put tar on his bat and they throw him a baseball and he hits it. And he goes, R and Rawlings. And there's a mark over the R and Rawlings tar mark. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and he was the best gunner the Navy had. He went in the Navy. And so some people are just process. My, my conclusion is that they just have faster processors. And now when I play tennis, I can feel it because I can be at the net and volleying. And in drills, I can volley as really well. But when you get in a fast situation, I can just feel these people are just a little ahead of me in terms of, uh, you know, it's like uh, these movies you see where they put everybody in slow motion. The guy can just walk through it, right? And so, and so anyway, that's... Uh, that's one of the things I picked up, uh, you know, in life from, from my observations. Hmm. I think it's also not just as speed. I agree that, that some yeah. people can just process things faster. I think yeah. there's also sensitivity. Like some people are just more sensitive, more, they can just, they can just sense things more clearly regardless of speed. And uh, yeah. also well, 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 to me, that's processing faster. You know what I mean? So, um, you know, that baseball coming over is coming over to them in slow motion. If I, if I could, if, if, you know, if, if it goes coming over at one-tenth the speed to me, I can do what they can do because <laughs> their processor is 10 times faster, you know, and that's what it takes to to, to get it. And uh, golf, professional golfers, too, they can see the club hit the ball at 140-mile-an-hour swing. Mm-hmm. At my 75-mile-an-hour swing, it's, it's kind of a blur. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's just it's processing the information, and part of that is what you call what you're calling sensing. So I would agree with that. But you have to be able to, you know, process the sequences that's happening. Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, so it's yeah. it's what allows you to process faster, and and your sensitivity, yeah, of yeah. And your sight and sight and hearing and thinking and all yeah. that. The, yeah. Regardless of speed, that helps your speed, and also distractions also as well. Yeah. Yeah, like, like and, you, and you'll hear these guys talk about being in the zone where everything slows down, and that's exactly right. When they get the adrenaline going, their processing goes hyper fast, and it becomes like slow motion mm-hmm. to them, mm-hmm. which is already you know slow. They're already processing ten times faster. All of a sudden, they get fifteen times faster when they're in the zone, so to speak. Yeah, actually, when I I I, I haven't in a while, but I really enjoy yeah. playing billiards, pool. Yeah, and. Sometimes I, 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 sometimes I can just get it. Sometimes I yeah. just know I'm going to hit it right. And then sometimes yeah. I just, I just, it's, it's just not working. My brain is just not working or yeah, I guess yeah. I'm nervous or thinking about it or, or overthinking or whatever it is, but mm-hmm. like, like pool as well. It's, it's, you know, it's that same kind of feeling. Um, and, uh, and actually, uh, 
a little ridiculous example, but it is real for me, is uh, Boggle, the game Boggle. Uh, the, you know, you, I, for people, you, you, a four by four grid of letters and you have to, you know, swipe for, for words in that grid. And I'm very good at that game. I've always been very good at that game, but when I play online competitively against other people, you know, I play, they play, we compare scores. I'm good, but it's like kind of what you said. Like I'm, I can reach it at like 90, 90%. And yeah, then yeah. I just can't get higher than that. I just can't. Right, right, right. And, and there's a number of things where I, I kind of feel like I, I'm good. I'm very good at this, but I will never exceed. There, there's a whole class of people that are yeah. just on a level above. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. Um, okay. Uh, the other question going back a little bit is just as far as the complexity or logic or rules or whatever it is, can you just can you briefly compare bridge to chess cuz i don't know the game bridge very well uh, there, there's similarities in that you're uh, trying to think through what can happen but in bridge it came down to the bidding and with chess doesn't have that so and you, there's a legal system of bidding and if you bid if your bids mean something else because you and your partner have agreed on this, that's illegal and you'll be disqualified. Hmm. So you have to use this legal system of signals, you know, when you're bidding. So if I say two spades, that has to mean a hand with so many spades in it, so many points or something. And everybody's going to see your hand by the end of the game. And so if, if that, if it didn't mean that, then, then you're kind of like in trouble. (laughs) You violated the rules. And especially if you if it means some, meant something else and your partner knew what it meant, so in that sense it's very different. But it, it, it's like chess in that it's logical, and one thing sort of forces another. Particularly when you're playing the cards, um, it, there's there are logical sequences and things you can set in motion that will play out. But when it comes to playing the cards you can get about as good as everybody else. That's not where the uh, difference is. The difference is in the bidding. And then um, and it, it, it's, just, it's just very, uh, I don't remember it exactly. I haven't played seriously since high school. So when was that? I was a class of 67. <laughs> that, that's 1967, by the way. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> I, I don't remember what it was like. I, I well, it, doing, is the bidding, yeah. the bidding is for points, I assume. I assume some people would do it for profit. Well, you have to win. Is. If you win the bidding, then you play the hand. And so, okay. you know, so you, so I'll go one spade and you'll go, I don't know, three clubs. The next guy will go three hearts or something like that. And, and then um, then you have to execute and make – and that's how many uh, tricks you're going to take. It's coming back to me slowly. Uh, <laughs> above a certain base amount, so it and if you, so you have to make those, otherwise you don't get you know you don't win. But uh, so it's a game of how far you can push it and still make it. Mm-hmm. And the bids back and forth give you some idea of what your uh, partner has in his hand and what the opponents have in their hands. But everybody's hearing the same thing, mm. and, and so it's, it's a good game now. Now the thing about duplicate bridge is, as a part. Of, for me was that after you play the card, you, you, you put it down in front of you. Okay. You don't throw it in and mix them up or anything like that. 
So each de- each deck, if you have different tables, you might have 10 tables of duplicate bridge, and uh, the cards are mixed at each table, the hands are, are, are dealt, but then they stay there. And so you then put the hand back on the table face down in front of you after your game, and maybe you made three no trump or something. And then the uh, you rotate to the next table. And then the other teams plays the exact same cards you just played. And they try to do better than what you did. They don't know what you did. Mm. They do their best hand. Mm. And so, and then you go to the next table and you're playing a hand, you know, all the other teams have played also. And then you can judge how you did against all 10 other teams because you've been playing the same cards. Mm. And so you have north-south teams that are all playing the same cards and then east-west teams that are all playing the same cards. So you have a north-west champion and a, and, you know, and a north-south champion and an east-west champion. Okay. Now it's coming back to me again. So <laughs> it was, you know, it was, there was a lot to learn, you know, a fair amount to learn. And as a, you know, 17-year-old in high school, you know, I, I had the curiosity to go through and get reasonably good at it. But again, realizing that the limitations and what I could do and, you know, where are you going to go out? And it just didn't seem any point in going any further. It's just part of my education, part of my knowledge. And I just kind of moved on. Okay. Uh, uh, you kind of just brought up the element of psychology. So, so like with, with, to, to connect this a little bit to MMT, MMT kind of shows that money is really the small thing. Every, what really matters is politics and psychology and science and, you know, everything else. So, so there's an element with, with bridge and with chess of psychology. Uh, and so I, I wonder, can you talk about, can you talk about the psychological element of chess and, and bridge and how you were successful or not successful with that element of it? And it's, and it's interesting how you suggested that you don't even know what your partner has in bridge. Yeah. So let me just go back to your MMT statement. You know, it, it, the money today is like a tool to get things done. So it's like the hammer. You know, you're building a house and what matters are the nails and the wood and everything else and not the hammer. Well, uh, assuming there's only one kind of hammer, it's, you have to know how to use it, right? You know, if you or if you have a, if you're using your uh, screwdriver like a hammer, you know, and your house doesn't come out right, or if you use your tools wrong, um, you know, you can make a mess of things. And, and, and that's what happens. People have don't understand the tools that they have to, uh, to, to, come, to get the outcomes they want in, in the real economy. Mm-hmm. But uh, back to the psychological parts, chess, not so much. Um, although you could do things to put people outside of their comfort zone, like use a queen pawn opening instead sort of a king pawn opening, which uh, people which have is played a lot. Which the best move that the other person is expecting of you. Well, they, if, you know, when they're learning how to play, usually you learn the king pawn openings first and then the queen pawns later. And so somebody's not putting a lot of time into the game, and I put a lot of time into queen pawn openings, then I'm going to have an advantage playing a queen pawn opening. Mm-hmm. So that's a little bit of the psychology in chess, but not, not much more than that. Uh, bridge, it's it's more of a communication between you and your partner with the bidding to have their so you bid to give each one information about your hand so you can try and determine what the correct bid would be to 
to win the bidding and get the most out of your hand or to defeat the other team if they win. So it's there, but it's not, it's not a lot. You know, it's not like politics or something like that. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. d- MMT says that money is important, but it's one of many things. I think that's more accurate way. Of well, it's, it. it's, it's nominal. It's a tool. It's a tax credit. It's there to, uh, uh, to organize and distribute things within the economy. It's not something you'd actually eat or, you know, sleep in or something like right. that, like it's a the house. Instructions of, it's the instructions for the it, rest of it. Well, it, it's not even the instructions. It's the uh, driving force behind it. The tax liability is what sets it. it it's a government that wants to provision itself, uses a tax liability to set forces in motion so that it can, uh, you know, shift resources from private to public domain. Okay. And so you can do that by taking slaves like they used to do in conquest or ask for volunteers, you know, or you can use a course of taxation to provision the state. Okay. And, and so the, the money becomes a tool for provisioning the state. And of mm-hmm. course you want to provision the state and, at the same time, you're trying to get real goods and services from the private sector. You want to be fostering that process as well, mm-hmm. you know, rather, just to support your own uh, okay. public purpose. But we'll get to that, I'm sure. Okay. Okay. Great. Um, all right. So, so you became an engineering major, uh, and you didn't do well, and then you switched to economics. So, I'd like yeah. to, I'd like to first. Can you describe? Can you remember? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'll give you the process. So I was in high school, and they give you tests and SATs and achievement tests. And I was strong in the uh, engineering side. I wasn't, I didn't have my heart set on being an engineer or anything like that. But I went to the University of Connecticut, uh, again, because the state school was $300 a year. I got yeah. into uh, Trinity College, which was 3000 so that was completely out of the question. And, and any other schools were out of the question. So uh, at, at the University of Connecticut, engineering was the hardest department to get into. And so if you wanted to transfer to another department, it was kind of automatic. But if you started off in another department and wanted to transfer, it might be problematic. Mm-hmm. So you know, were That's strongly in that. Yeah. So as a point of logic, you get into engineering first. And from there, you, it's it's pretty simple matter to transfer to another one of the other uh, majors yeah so but it was engineering which is kind of you know that's what you had been doing for much of your life whether physical or or you know yeah and I, I i tested well in math and uh, science it's interesting because i uh had an 800 score which is a perfect score in uh, my achievement test for physics and mm-hmm. i i wound up getting a d in physics that semester so uh-huh. I, <laughs> so, so I, I had this ability to do things, at least according to the testing. I had some kind of an aptitude, but I, I, I didn't have what it took to score good grades. And a lot of that might have been attention span or ability. You know, my mind would wander and I think of other things. And I, mm-hmm. Lose track. Lose track. For, for me, in nineteen ninety three, I failed my first college course because the Phillies won the World Series. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so the same thing happened in engineering. I, I can remember trying to stay awake. I just couldn't stay awake in this computer in this uh, chemistry class. Hmm. Uh, and I'd been watching this a movie, The Ipcrest File, with Michael Caine. I don't know if you ever saw that. 
what's it so, what's it called uh the ipcrest files and uh he's the spy or whatever he was in this movie and they he's captured and they're using some form of hypnosis to try and get him to become a, a robot to go kill somebody, but they're trying to control him. And he's doing everything he can to not fall asleep. And, and he's on this wire bed thing, you know, like a bed spring with no mattress. That's where they throw him in after each session. And he takes a small tack, a nail, and he, he, uh, loose, he gets it loose from the uh, bed, bed spring. And he, he makes a fist and puts it in his hand. And during this next hypnosis thing, he's like driving this nail into his hand to, to keep him from falling asleep and getting, mm. you know, getting going under. And I think, and, and, you know, that's really just undertones. <laughs> yeah. And you see him, right. And you see him drop the nail and his hand opens up and it's all full of blood. And he's mm. out cold. So I said, okay, let's give it a try. So I tried that in my chemistry class <laughs> and it didn't work. I, I still fell asleep. I got as far as solubility <laughs> coefficients, I think. <laughs> I don't know why. I just couldn't stay awake in these classes. Okay. Same, same thing with computer classes and everything else. Gosh, actually, <laughs> just a, a brief aside, if I may, uh, yeah. knowing what year this was, what was the computers like? Oh, we had punch cards doing Fortran. And so I'd go out for sandwiches and somebody else would do the punch cards. <laughs> 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 okay. I, I knew how they worked. I could write a, a program or something, but, you know, start doing 10 exercises and turn them in. It's like, I, I don't know. I just couldn't get myself to do it. Well, okay. So, I mean, but you tinkered your whole life, whether it was physical yeah. or, or, or rules. Yeah. rules. Yeah. So engineering kind of seems logical, but you're saying that you didn't want to be an engineer. So yeah, like, what I mean, did they you give want you to this... be when you grew up, I guess? Yeah. Yeah. Like they say, I'm still working on that. But they, yeah. uh, you know, they, you start, you learn determinants and they give you, you know, you've got nine boxes and they square determinant they have to solve or something. And I know how to do it, but I don't want to do 10 of them and turn it in as a homework assignment. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Whatever it was, I, I just didn't have the motivation to do that. I do remember looking at the determinant for a helicopter blade and deciding I wasn't going to fly in helicopters. I've avoided helicopters ever since. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, and in math, I got up as far as uh, differentials. And the problem there was I'd always been able to get through math classes, calculus, the whole thing by understanding what was happening behind the numbers. And I could see things accelerating or decelerating that caused numbers to grow or not grow geometrically or arithmetically. I could kind of conceptualize all that. When we got to differentials, the, the math teacher said, well, look, there's no way to conceptualize what's going on here. You have to just memorize 10 ways to do it. Yeah. Oh, okay. And at that point, I just kind of lost interest in it. I, I later found out, no, you can conceptualize it. But I, but I didn't know that at the time and wound up hmm. not just glassing over and, and not going any further. Hmm. Is that disappointing that you that you could have conceptualized uh, if you had known? No, how? no, no, not particularly. No, because I, I already know the concepts, so I don't need to like do them. Okay. All right. So you switched to economics, and I, I'm very curious of your memories of economics, not just like kind of how you. Yeah. I mean, you know, partially how you did, but but even more so of were you taught complete trash, like. Okay, so you know, Dr. Ray said that he immediately knew it was easy and the math was a joke, you know, very easy, and he just yeah. did very well, but it was completely useless. He knew it was completely useless right from the beginning. 
Yeah. So that my the first class I went into, there were about 600 people in it. Oh. And uh, the professor puts up a, a graph with price and quantity. And this price, you know, and he draws like a line with some slope in it. And immediately like 30 hands go up or 50 hands go up and they say, is there going to be a lot of math in this class? <laughs> <laughs> and he says, no, not a lot, but you'll need to know a simple, you know, X and Y axis curve. <laughs> and at least 25 people got up and walked out. <laughs> and and uh, I just go out of engineering and I said, okay, I'm, I'm in the right place. I can get through this. You know, I, so anyway, so yeah, it's not particularly difficult. Um, and I found a lot of it interesting. I found the statistics courses interesting. I didn't, do all the long division I was supposed to do by hand, but I certainly understood what was going on and how, how the different concepts worked. And uh, I found all the curves interesting. They told me things. I, you know, I, I didn't necessarily agree with the assumptions behind them, but given their assumptions, then they were okay. You know, they, they worked. And so what economics was, is like given this set of assumptions, uh, here's what follows just as a point of logic. And they were, you know, neoclassic economics is, I can't say 100% because I don't know it that well, but for the most part, okay when it comes to that. Uh, you know, but which is interesting is, uh, you know, I was in a class with, uh, I know I was with Ed Nell, who's a heterodox economist at New School, still around, Matt Forstad or Randy Ray. And Ed's got his model up on the board. This was probably in 1997 or something like that. And one of the assumptions is, uh, okay, and the interest rate is 4%, you know, X is, R is the interest rate, then this is a function of that. I said, well, you know, and if money increases, then and it'll, the, the rate will go down or something out or up. And I said, well, Ed, what, what do you mean R? What interest rate is that? He says, well, the interest rate. Mm-hmm. I said, well, do you mean the Fed funds rate, the rate at the, at the Fed? He goes, well, yeah. I said, okay, well, that's like, that's a balance in the, at the Fed. It's on their books. It only pays interest if they pay interest on it. They decide the rate. It's a monopoly. They're the single supplier that, that deposit those deposits. And even if people put, you know, if people go out and borrow money in their deposit or even at a regular bank, you take out a loan that creates a deposit, the deposits grow, the bank gets more deposits. It's just a number on the bank's account. That, that grows or shrinks, it doesn't like cause rates to do anything. If the banks, you know, if the Fed's rate is 4%, it's going to be four, whether there's a million dollars in there or a billion dollars. It doesn't like change the rate. The rate has to change for a different reason. And he looks at this whole thing and he goes, oh, oh yeah, yeah, I guess that's right, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so again, it's, his model wasn't wrong. It's just that his assumption about what the interest rate was, you know, what was an assumption that did apply to to any kind of a real world, right? And maybe you could make up some world where that would happen, but it was not an applicable assumption to what he was trying to do. And so he went back and changed the whole thing. Hmm. So, um, so th- that's what happens when I look at people who give me a model from Wharton, Ken Smetter's model about uh, intergenerational growth or something. I'll look at the assumptions and I'll say, okay, what does this mean? What does that mean? And they don't have any idea. Hmm. And in the mm-hmm. model, it you can't. It doesn't work unless you you can pin down what these assumptions mean. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and, so assume, and, they, and they assume that the assumptions are correct. 
Well, they're, well, they're not even correct and not correct. They don't even know what they are. So they, they, the model uses them in a way that could be right or whatever. But it's not like it's not, you know, based on the assumptions. It could be other things too. And and certainly, there's no applicability to to the real world. So I remember I was with Ken and there were four other people on the panel, and they were from you know they were Wall Street types like myself. And you know, I said, well. And he was talking about, you know, um, intergenerational transfers or something and how it's, if, if this is, this is un- unsustainable, you know, if the growth rate's higher than the, uh, lower than the rate of interest or something like that. And, and I said, well, well what's going to happen that the, you know, why is it unsustainable? He, he said, what's going to happen if somebody at the Fed's going to get an electric shock if they make this interest payment or something? You know, like, what, what are you talking about? He says, well... He says, well, you're talking about the real world. I'm talking about, you know, with the assumption in my model. And with the assumption in my model, you can't do that. So I said, okay. And the other guys are looking at him like, are you serious? (laughs) (laughs) And so their models all have these assumptions that are completely inapplicable. But if you go by his assumption, like, says you can't do this, you know, then, okay, then you can't do it. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like, you know, if we repeal the law of gravity, then we can save a lot of energy. Well, it's not really a law that, in the same way that, you know, the laws you would normally think about. Uh, you know, you just can't have Congress repeal the law of gravity. It's, you know, it's a play on words. Well, they could. <laughs> they could yeah, try. yeah, they could. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they could repeal it, but things, it's not going to save any energy, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, but in his model, it does because then there's no gravity. Because Congress repealed the law of gravity. And then once they've done that, A, B, and C, and everything's, look at all the energy we save. It's like, okay, but your assumption is not, you know, applicable to Mm -hmm. the problem at hand. And it's not even like, it's not even practical versus theoretical. It's not even theoretically applicable to to any They assume that it is. They assume assume that it's yeah, they assume that the assumptions are reasonable, and they assume that those are re- those whatever they are. They, they, are they, they implicitly assume they're reasonable. They never even thought about them. They mm-hmm. just kind of use they just kind of use these plugs, like R is the is the uh, rate of interest, and I is the rate of inflation. I mean, they can't tell you what I is. Was it mm-hmm. CPI? If it's CPI, you can just change tobacco tax and change it all day long. So it can't be CPI, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, I can reduce inflation. I'll just cut tobacco tax. I'll pay people yeah. to smoke. And all of a sudden, we have negative CPI. Yeah, you know, actually, that's, that's actually the, the Biden administration is bragging about how the unemployment rate yeah. is so much lower than it was last year, which and yeah. then all these people are pointing out, well, that's because you threw off like millions and millions of people off of the unemployment roll. So, of course, it yeah. looks better. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So, um, fine. So, uh, I forgot the question. So, we go so back yeah, to actually, question. so, okay. Um, did you know when you were in college economics, Yeah. did you know that it was nonsense while you were there? When did you I realize? Didn't, yeah. I didn't, I didn't get deep into, I, I didn't do that. It wasn't that advanced. I just took enough courses to graduate as a you know, as an economics major, I'd already had two years of engineering. Maybe I took four courses. Maybe I took one each semester. Oh. You know, so I took a micro and a macro and maybe urban or something. I don't know. I took I took four courses or whatever I needed. Maybe it was only three to graduate. And Wow. Okay. You know, so they were mostly introductory courses. So I, I didn't have very much. But, you know, I did read a book 
and uh, by John Kenneth Galbraith. And it was either mm. the Affluent Society or the New Industrial State. I eventually read both, but whatever the first one was. And he talked about reversing the causations, you know, where uh, it's assumed in economics that companies, people, investors try and determine what people want and then try and address that need. Whereas in the way it works today in the United States and advanced economies is that they determine what they can build with technology and then figure out how to create a need for it. Mm. And, and one thing stands create out. Disease so you can sell them the cure. Yeah. So they come up with something that, um, yeah, which stops people, from, uh, changes the way people smell. Mm. And so then they create this culture of, well, you don't, you, you know, you smell bad and you need this deodorant, mm-hmm. you know, or else you're, you know, to be socially, whatever. And, mm-hmm. and then they sell it. Well, mm-hmm. before that, nobody cared one way or the other. Mm-hmm. And so they, he was talking about how this shift has shifted the economy from, you know, businesses chasing needs to businesses creating needs based on their technology. That, that was his thing. And, and it's, you know, of course, it's a mixture of both, but um, that probably dominates or has dominated for a long time. So he wrote that, I don't know, a long time ago. And uh, so that's how I got. And, and so that resonated with me and because I had already, it's kind of the way I thought anyway. And so I was, you know, and I wound up uh, reading several of his books subsequently. And um, he's my seven the deadly innocent frauds of economic policy came from his book, uh, which I acknowledge up front the, the mm. about uh, innocent frauds, wrote, the economics. Am I right that he wrote the intro or whatever you call it? The it was his son, Jamie Galbraith. His son, his son, his son. Yeah, James Professor. And it's interesting. I got to know him about also about 1996 or seven at the economics conferences. And he's always more than sympathized with what I did. He, he wrote the forward to it. And, and what's interesting is John Kenneth Galbraith, I would say, was maybe the top economist, he was Canadian, but he was worked in the United States, but certainly the top American, maybe global economist of, of all time. But he had no grad students. And I don't know if he even had very many undergrads. And so there's nobody like carrying on his name through their work. And that's how these economists like Minsky, how, why does everybody know about Minsky? You know, you read it, it's okay and everything, but why would... Well, because he had these grad students. Randy Ray was his grad student, mm-hmm. got his t- degree under him. And mm-hmm. grad students then promote their um, their master and keep, keep them alive and keep them mm-hmm. going. And so uh, the economists, and that's, that's what keeps economists alive, is the grad students referencing their work and using it in different things. Galbraith had none of that. And so, was that, was uh, that by design, or was that by? Did he choose that, or was there something behind I, that? I don't, I don't know. It's just the way his career took place. But the the point is, Jamie kind of watching his father, who is this, you know, you know, t- absolutely brilliant economist, uh, and um, had, I'd say, every every element of MMT, uh, with not the exception, but he didn't go far enough on the idea that the currency was a public monopoly. He didn't, he didn't ex- explicitly say that, and therefore uh, the government's price setter as far as pricing. But he ran price and wage controls and everything else during World War II, so he certainly knew it functionally. Mm-hmm. And um, 
and, and he's the guy I go to guy where I'd read about a lot of these things. Anyway, so here I'm the only guy referencing John Kenneth Galbraith. Mm. So you read this <laughs> you know, during your degree, not after your degree. Yes. And then when he came out with the book later, I did it. And then a couple of down the road every once in a while, I'd see a quote of his and I'd go back and, and read the book or read parts of the book. And, and so um, Jamie's the one who wrote the foreword, a very good foreword, and mm-hmm. knows it very well, everything I do, and uh, is supportive. But at the same time, you know, he's kept a distance from the whole MMT movement in that he doesn't, if you ask him whether he's an MMT, whatever you want to call it, he'll, he'd say no, he's a post-Keynesian or whatever. And uh, and I'm not exactly sure why, but um, he's certainly been, you know, good for everything we've done, and I and I support what he does. So, uh, okay. so it's, it's interesting. So that, so anyway, I was introduced to John Kenneth Galbraith as an undergrad. It's one of maybe two books or three books that I read. Uh, and then that long answer to your short question. Okay. No, good. I like long answers and I like short questions. Um, Okay. So two more questions regarding this first part and the, uh, the, you witnessed, you lived the OPEC oil crisis. Like you, I believe you were just starting your, wanting to start your first job when the crisis hit. And so you just, I mean, economics i mean it, it's less than it's less than i thought it's just it was you know just some courses a few courses but right you witnessed it firsthand and and as i as i understand it you knew what the real cause was while it was happening so uh, yeah well you know what? i didn't think about it at the time and uh you know i knew you know opec was raising the price uh, whether it was through causing shortages or through price setting, I didn't have any reason to think one way or another about it. So if you had asked me, I would have said, well, I have to think about it. Mm-hmm. I just had thought through. But you didn't buy, you didn't buy the, like the monitors, the monitors propaganda. Did, did you, you, how, what was your memory of hearing that? Or, or did you believe that in any way? Did you, did you, I mean, I assume that it had to be I, in your awareness. I mean, that was a huge I, I, part of how they took over. I, I, I didn't hear that. And how is that a part of how they took over? The monitor, I'm learning from a, a economist Assad Zaman that the, the monitorist used the OPEC oil crisis as a coup to, to have a coup to kick out the post. Oh, yeah, later on. Yeah, so what happened was. Oh, that was later. Okay, I, I don't know. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't, it, the crisis was there, the inflation was there. So what happened was, even before that, you know, Nixon had come out with price and wage controls. Which didn't work, and and the Keynesians at the time, I didn't I didn't know anything about post Keynesians, but I guess I don't know when they started. But the the Keynesians at the time uh, had had said, look, you need price and wage controls to take care of this inflation, and the population would rather have inflation than price and wage controls. That's they mm. just didn't want the government telling everybody what price to pay, and price mm. and wage controls can be in their own way hugely regressive because you can always monitor them for the highest for a certain part of the population. So the large unions and steel workers like you know iron workers and uh, auto workers and whatnot, those were highly visible and where you could uh, and they worked for the largest corporations. So you could 
you could regulate the wages for the largest corporations. But to reg- regulate the wages that you'd pay somebody to cut your grass or something like that, you know, you can't do that. Uh, and, and so when, you, when you're in an inflation, you start limiting the wages of groups for these corporations. Of course, you're helping the corporation in a, in a way. And you're hurting those people relative to other people who are working for you, cutting your grass or doing lawn work, who now can make more money because their wages aren't regulated. It's all market determined. Mm-hmm. And so it's only the wages that you're regulating that are getting hurt. Mm-hmm. And the rest are wages that you're not regulating or the rest of compensation or small businesses that are quasi wages, right, that are doing work for other people, contractors. Those aren't regulated. And it becomes grossly unfair and inequitable. And the government inevitably botches it. Uh, and uh, people would rather have the inflation than have the government trying to do that. Hmm. And, and and even back then, there wasn't a lot of confidence in the government being able to do it outside of, you know, Galbraith in World War II, which is a different circumstance. But even then you had, you know, massive issues of corruption and everything else during World War II. Hmm. And, uh, and the inflation I just saw got as high as 20% one year. So, yes, we won World War II, but there's an asterisk. Uh, inflation went up. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> okay, so, so. Yeah. Oh, so, so on a look back, on a look back, okay, which I picked up in the late 70s when I was actually working. And in 73, I didn't, didn't have any reason to look back. But the price of oil had been set by the Texas Railroad Commission up until the early 70s. And it was set through their quota system. And we had excess capacity in Texas and in, in Louisiana and in our oil belt. Sound familiar? And mm-hmm. so the Texas Railroad Commission, to keep the price from collapsing to 10 cents a barrel or whatever, 50 cents a barrel, would give everybody quotas. Sounding more familiar? <laughs> and they and they pegged the price at somewhere around 250 maybe $3 a barrel. And there were quotas so that you couldn't exceed to keep the price from falling below $3. And it stayed at $3 for what's called the golden age of economics and capitalism and everything else. And it was a golden age because the raw material for the whole economy, which then was oil, even the public utilities burned oil, uh, the price was fixed by the Texas Railroad Commission, stabilized by a quota system to keep it from being lower. So, But it was stable. And so everything fed off of that price. Everything was a function of that. And everything, I'm exaggerating a little bit. And so we had very low inflation and low unemployment. And we could do that because uh, we had this excess capacity in oil. And they kept um, lowering, as we needed more and more of that Texas oil, uh, they kept um, increasing the quotas for people so that it could be met. Then by 1970 or 71, somewhere in there, I'm the year wrong, uh, the demand for oil was higher than, with no quotas, the demand exceeded the U.S. supply. And so now the price would go up unless we had foreign oil. Now suddenly there's foreign oil, let's say from Saudi Arabia and OPEC, that's, um, and, and NACE became, so that the pricing switched from the Texas Railroad Commission to Saudi Arabia, where mm-hmm. they would set a price mm-hmm. and let their output adjust to that price before the Texas Railroad Commission would set a price for Texas oil and let output adjust. Well, once that exceeded capacity, you can't do that anymore. So as long as the 
Saudis had excess capacity, they could set a price and it wouldn't go above their price. They just sell more oil until they hit capacity. Then, the, then they could lose control on the upside. Well, that, that didn't happen. They were just setting price. And the rest of OPEC was, you know, going along for the ride. Mm-hmm. And uh, this continued right up until the recession of 1979, where um, the demand collapsed, kind of like it did during COVID. And the demand collapsed uh, from the recession. Uh, and um, Saudi oil production went from whatever, 10 million barrels a day to less than five, which they couldn't cut anymore because then they have to cap wells and destroy your oil fields. So mm. the, they could no longer just set the price and, and sell less. They had to sell what they had. And so the price went down to 10 bucks a gallon or something like that, uh, a barrel or something like that. Uh, and, and the whole thing collapsed. And the price of oil came down from like four, high of 40 to maybe 10 over a few years as, as this whole, the whole OPEC thing came apart due to the recession. And at the same time, after that, the demand came back only slowly. Jimmy Carter had deregulated natural gas, which was exactly what I was. That was exactly what I was. Yeah, Yeah. it wasn't a major. If you look at the amount of gas consumed, it's it wasn't a major substitute immediately, but it became larger. And it it had to be psychological. Well, it allowed utilities to switch because when it's capped and and people wouldn't pump because there's a 50 cent cap or something, then um, they couldn't switch to that product because they could run out. But once it was on cap, then then they could switch, and so mm-hmm. the utilities would switch and uh, to natural gas and other and industry switched and globally things switched. There was there were shifts to other things as the price of oil had gone up. So the immediate reason for the drop was the um, recession, but in addition to that, you know, um, a contributing factor was a deregulation of natural gas and. I'm sure coal and other things came on mm-hmm. as substitutes. Okay, so you know, Volcker gets credit for breaking the inflation. But think about what would happen today if you know, or what did happen today to our inflation numbers when oil broke from 140 or something down to whatever. The inflation numbers come down immediately. And uh, same thing, you know, the headline inflation number comes down immediately. It took a long time back then. And the reason what my narrative is, the reason why it took so long is because the high rates were keeping it, were sustaining it, and were a contributing factor to inflation staying high through, through the next 10 years. It came down slowly to 3% uh, as rates were lowered. And I know Richard Werner, who's, I think, last, he's a central banker, Bank of England, maybe. Uh, he's a German economist. Just did a paper a few years ago showing that the... Um, Inflation, you know, interest rates lead inflation. So when interest rates come down, that, that inflation comes down, that type of thing. Where he doesn't say the interest rate causes inflation, but he says they lead, which is, you know, uh, circumstantial evidence that when rates go up, they're causing inflation. When rates come down, they're causing inflation to come down. And it's CPI, which is obviously imprecise also. So it's not, it's not rock solid data, but it, at least it's, good macro data over long periods of time in that direction. Okay. Uh, so anyway, so what caused the recession in 79, if not the high rates? So, so again, my narrative is that the high rate of inflation caused fiscal policy to tighten up dramatically. 
what happened was we had what they used to call bracket creep, where people were going into higher and higher tax brackets because of inflation. Revenues were skyrocketing like they're doing now for the government. They were. And, um, you know, after COVID and after um, the economy picked up and once prices started picking up, uh, sales taxes and other transactions taxes generate more revenue from the government. And not just federal government, state and local government. And as you get higher prices, people's nominal savings in real terms, the, what it can buy drops. So if you're a business like uh, Apple and you've got $200 billion of cash, which you think is the right amount to safely run your operation in case things slow down, you can still do your R&D, you can still pay your bills, you feel comfortable with $200 billion in cash. If we had 100% inflation, uh, price increases, inflation, prices on everything doubled, all your wage bills doubled, everything else, suddenly $200 billion doesn't feel like a lot of money to you. Now you need $400 billion. Mm-hmm. And so just in that... In that you know, equates to pretty much everything. Pension funds need to have more to provide the same amount of inflation-adjusted income to retirees ultimately down the line. And uh, people's cash, everybody's cash register, the cash you carry around in your pockets, your savings, your size of your insurance policy, the insurance reserves, you know, it filters down everything. The net financial, the, the, the perceived need for net financial assets in the economy doubles if price level doubles. Now, uh, you know, some assets like stocks might go up to help you with that. I'm not, I'm not saying there aren't things, financial assets that don't go up, but there is, it does create a shortage. Okay. And, uh, and that can only, that shortage causes people not to spend and to pull back because their, their cash is down and, you know, they're vulnerable and uh, their savings is depleted. And they, there's, a, there's a need for a certain amount of real savings, what that, what that money can buy. Uh, just just on an operating basis for companies. And so that puts a big squeeze on because spending drops, spending is GDP, GDP, and you go into a recession. And it can easily be offset by the government running a larger deficit, but they don't realize it at the time. In fact, they're usually proud of themselves for uh, the deficit going down and whatnot. Now, it's mm-hmm. not so clear, you know, clearly that happened in the end of the 1990s because we actually posted a nominal budget surplus. We didn't have a lot of inflation. But at the end of the 70s, what happened was the, the real budget deficit, the real public debt was shrinking, just as if we were running a nominal surplus, except we were, there was inflation. So the inflation might have been 12% and the debt in the deficit for the year seven. Well, that means in real terms, you've just shrunk the net money supply in the economy by 5%. And then the whole thing caves in when you've got mm-hmm. that force in motion. So leave that long enough and keep pressing on that pedal and you will, that brake pedal, and you will cause everything to collapse. And that's, that's what caused it, in my narrative, that's what caused that recession in 1979, 1980. It was pretty severe and it wasn't identified as such because, uh, yes, debt to GDP came down, but nobody looks at that. They say, oh, the government's still running a large deficit. But the public debt itself, the outstanding public debt in real terms was coming down dramatically. And so uh, as evidenced by the debt, debt to GDP ratio coming down. Okay. Okay. Uh, okay. If you can, I have one yeah. more big question for you, which is yeah, unrelated yeah, yeah. to this. But if you could answer this, I want to follow sure. up. If you could answer this follow up very tersely, so oh, we can go I mean, more it'd be, to the next it'd be, one. 
be f- feel free to edit any of this out you want, by the way, <laughs> any of these ramblings. Uh, no, no. Uh, okay. Okay. Um, no, I, 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 I am enjoying it. I just want, I'm just, okay. uh, I want to be conscious of your time uh, to be sure. able to get to the, to the page. Oh, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. Okay. Um, okay. So this is a follow-up, but can, can you please answer this follow-up pretty tersely? Yeah. And that is, you said, does this sound familiar? I'm not exactly sure what you're referring to. Uh, which parts were those? Um, you were saying like I- earlier yeah. on, you were saying like, does this sound familiar? Does not sound even yeah, more yeah, familiar? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's the same thing you're hearing today, whatever I was saying. COVID. Yeah, I was talking about, um, yeah, when you, go, when you go back and hear it, those are the same, those are the echoes of what's happening today. Exactly okay. the same kind of political responses, the same ideas. Oh, uh, okay, okay. The same, uh, the same thinking, okay, okay. Uh, is going on. So it was, oh yeah, that was about the, uh, the Texas oil commission. Oh, it was about OPEC. So the Texas oil commission was a monopoly setting price. The same thing we're complaining about today from OPEC, right? And, and they're, they were artificially keeping the price at $3 where the market, if they had, it would have been a glut of oil and it would have been a dollar or 50 cents or something. And instead it was the Texas railroad commission was the OPEC of its day. That's why I'm saying about the South familiar. It's exactly what's going on today with OPEC was okay. going on uh, with the Texas Railroad Commission. Same tactics, same results, uh, same everything, but different motivations. Their motivation was to keep it stable. OPEC's is to, you know, presumably get as much money for themselves as they can, at least in the long term. Okay. So, because that's what they're supposed to be doing, right? Okay. You know, the best real terms of trade they can. Yeah, All that's right. what it was about. Okay, I remember. All right. it. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, okay. It's echoes of OPEC. Yeah. Okay. Uh, all right. So my last question on this first half of, of yeah. the, I'll basically I'll call it just roughly speaking your personal story. Um, there, this is from this is uh, inspired by an excerpt from seven from Seven Deadly Innocent Frauds, and I, um, you know, you're you're going to know this for for listeners. I don't know. Maybe I'll read it or something. It's just a few paragraphs. But you talk about how in your first job or one of your first jobs that you were collecting delinquent loans, that you are enforcing yeah. delinquent loans, and that you talked about how this enforcement is critical for the system. I started in the bank's personal loan department, where my first responsibility was to collect delinquent loans. Paul Coop, the department head, handed me the collection of books and added with a smile, there's gold in them there books. Once a loan was delinquent, my job was to figure out how to get the money back. That could mean anything from phone calls to trying to get the borrower to make his payments, to repossessing the car or other collateral and selling it for as much as possible. Collection methods also included home visits, using the legal system to secure legal judgments against the debtors, and attaching bank accounts or garnishing wages to directly collect the money owed to the bank. I quickly realized that this was where the rubber meets the road for the entire credit system. Without enforcement, there is no extension of credit. Loans were only as good as the ability to collect them. Years later, I would recognize that this was also true of the currency itself, and that the value of the dollar was only as good as the federal government's ability to enforce tax collection. More on this later. If you aren't taking some losses, you're costing the bank money. I currently own a buy here, pay here used car lot. All of our borrowers are subprime or less, and I make the lending decisions myself. 
Of every 100 new loans, three or four seem to go bad and cost me a few dollars after the car is repossessed and resold. And I still wonder with each application if I'm being too tight or too lax. After 40 years, the basic concepts of determining credit worthiness still seem to hold. And what what's interesting to me is is what must have been a you describe it as a struggle of basically my kind of summary of it is that you need to enforce because there has to be a rule of law and you need to not be exploited yourself as a borrower as a, as a lender and you need to not exploit the borrowers so i'm actually very curious about that hmm. struggle that balance and right. do you have any you know times when it when you know it didn't work and you abused your power on on one occasion or, or that you got exploited or or whatever and and in particular you know connecting that to our hmm. you know the, the lender is gets to exploit the borrower with free reign in our current system yeah so to the first point that it, if you can't if loans were not collectible, if there was a law against collecting delinquent loans, then there'd be no lending because nobody would ever pay it back. You'd have to be a damn fool to pay it back, right? It's the damn fool theory, right? Mm-hmm. So um, immoral hazard. And so you have to have laws on about these types of things. And our bankruptcy laws has, has a lot of these laws. Uh, other, otherwise, if you if you want to have lending, so I've had people say like, oh, how do we stop these banks from making these kinds of loans? Uh, just make it illegal to collect loans, you know, if they've been made under these circumstances. Hmm. Yes, you can make a loan to somebody under circumstances A, B, and C. You can lie to them. You can do whatever you want. But if he doesn't pay, you can't collect. <laughs> okay, that, that eliminates the lending problem. So <laughs> again, when you understand cause and effect and whatnot, it, it helps come up with policy descriptions that make sense and are, you know, the elegant solution to serving public purpose or, or to accomplish what you think serves public purpose, which would be not lending in this case. So I'd say, you know, make it illegal to lend against financial assets because I don't think for banking, I don't think we need state sponsored lending against stocks and bonds and things like that. I don't see how that serves any public pur- purpose to have state sponsored leverage of these types of things. And so, uh, a, you just tell banks they can't do it, okay? It's not on their approved list. Pull them off the approved list. And if you want to go further, you can say, look, anybody else who lends and takes that stuff as collateral, it's not it's not going to be enforced in our court of law. Sorry. Hmm. And then they're not going to do it either. So when people give me a problem to give them some kind of a proposal to try and solve it, oftentimes I come up with things like that that they pretty much hadn't heard before because I don't think think people think in that direction all that often. Actually, it, if, I, uh, if I could interject, yeah, uh, there's, yeah. I think something compatible with that is uh, there's an Islamic concept called musharka, which, uh-huh. which, which makes it such that a lender must put themselves at like 20% of the risk, where currently yeah. banks don't have any of the risk. The borrowers all have all the risk. Musharka is the concept well, of making banks, forcing them to lose twenty up to twenty yeah. percent, which makes them much more choosy of who they lend to and to monitor well, while it's happening. Well, 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 banks do exactly that, though, don't they? I mean, if they if they 
a loan doesn't get paid back, their shareholders lose the money. The shareholders are the owners. Well, I, it seems pretty. I mean, there's certainly nothing like twenty percent. I mean, a home of someone. I don't. I don't know. But well, just my limited, okay, well, limited view, like a homeowner, the homeowner loses everything. The bank gets the home. The bank gets their money, and the homeowner gets screwed. So I, it seems seems pretty clear well, that the banks are way well, if on the house, advantage. Well, if the house sells for less than the loan, the bank takes a loss, right? Okay, I, I guess I don't know what I'm talking about. That, but. <laughs> yeah, that, no, I mean that, that was a problem in the in the crisis. The banks had these losses; it wiped out their shareholders' equity. The owners lost all their money, and it, you know they say, "Oh, the banks were bailed out." Well, no, no, they weren't. The owners lost all their money. That's how a, a business loses money. I, I mean, you know, that that's yeah, that's called losing. You know, that's, that's not being bailed out. Being bailed out is when the owners, you know, don't lose when when their business goes bad. But okay. if you have a small business with a building, you know, a supermarket, and you go bankrupt and lose all your money, and the bankruptcy court sells that building to somebody else, and he, and he's, you know, keeps it running, you don't say, oh, that supermarket got bailed out. No, the mm-hmm. owner lost everything. A new owner came in, bought it from the bankruptcy court. Okay. All right. I mean, I don't want to. Yeah. I don't want to leave aside yeah. like you know, robo signing and all that stuff. So there's clearly more to the picture. But oh yeah, but if, they, if those loans huge. don't, if if those loans don't pay, the bank loses their money. Now the capital ratio. Tells you the maximum the bank can lose for if it lost all its loans. So if a bank has ten percent capital ratio, which means ninety percent depositors' money, ten percent their own money. As they take losses, their own money gets lost first, and then once they've lost more than ten percent of assets, then it's shareholders, which is FDIC, which is the government. So the government picks up losses once the shareholders have been wiped out. And after '08, most of these large bank shareholders were wiped out. They they had nothing left. Hmm, okay. So, yeah. All right. So, so sorry for derailing you. So the so the, okay. Okay. so the larger question is striking that balance in your own position as enforcement. There, there must have been a struggle for you because you had power, and you, you know, I, I'm sure you're you're a reasonable person, and you don't want to abuse your power. So, how did you struggle with that? And are there any uh-huh. anecdotes with that? There, there are some anecdotes. But look, if somebody borrowed money from the department store next door to buy a lawnmower borrowed a hundred dollars and didn't pay it back. I didn't feel bad trying to collect the money from the guy. You know, it's like he got the lawnmower and, uh, you know, the rate of interest was reasonable. It was a bank. So we had low rates of interest and I, I didn't see any moral issue there. Hmm. Um, they weren't just using to their loans, which is different than like the housing crisis. Yeah. I mean, so there's a, we had a woman who borrowed loans, one of my loan officers, I wasn't making loans and lent her money to buy some, False teeth or something, yeah, some false <laughs> teeth, and it was like two hundred and fifty dollars or something, and she became delinquent. Mm. So I called her and very nicely, she said, "Well, yeah, she's hopes she'll make payments." I said, "Well, how about if you bring the teeth into the bank and I'll hold them for you, and then when you make the payments, we can give them back to you." <laughs> anyway, okay. she she didn't want to do that, and I didn't press the issue. <laughs> but it's just it's just a friendly suggestion. Uh-huh. Now, uh, you know, we did have the we did turn a loan down to. Department store trying to, he was uh, it was a lawnmower, power lawnmower that you have to push, and he was selling it to an eighty-five year old woman or something. And we're going like, "What are you doing?" You know, she's mm-hmm. she how can she move on? Because well, you know, her credit's good, and she wants to wants the lawnmower or whatever. And uh, you know, we tried to, he wanted to do it, and her credit was good, so we had to do it. And of course, 
she never could never use a lawnmower or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So you know, we did we did things like that. Okay. Okay. So, so it really wasn't a struggle. I, I'm surprised. Then I guess, yeah. I guess, I guess but I don't it was know. an education. It was an education. That's for sure. I covered the car dealers. Those guys are like <laughs> pretty rough characters. You know, uh, you know, they want to borrow money for a car. They've got a customer and it's like, well, where are you going to get the, how about the, you know, well, we require 25% down payment. It's like, okay, well, we'll, we'll send them to the blood bank for the downstroke. They used to say. The blood bank would be household finance at 20% or something like that. Beneficial finance or one of those hmm. loan companies. And, you know, we certainly discouraged that and didn't, wouldn't, wouldn't make those loans. You know, we would require that none of the down payment be borrowed. Now, not, but not always, but, but normally we would as normal policy. And, and the dilemma is there's some people don't have the down payment. Should, not, should they not be able to get the money to buy a car? You know, even though on paper it looks like they can afford the payments, even though you know they're being exploited by these, the blood banks that we called, we called them the blood banks. So, you know, we tried to avoid those as much as possible, but I'm not, I'm sure we didn't do it 100%. And again, I was, I was a new guy there. There were two other loan officers who had been there 15 or 20 years making the real decisions. Hmm. Okay. I, I don't know. This, there's something different, like, Today, to some extent, exploitation is allowed. So today, there must be some kind of a struggle for good people that are out there to not to that to do have that struggle because it is an option to exploit. It is legal in some senses. Well, to let, let, me, let, let me give you a, an extreme example. But somebody goes in to buy a house that's worth that would have normally been two hundred thousand. They pay two hundred. They want to pay two hundred fifty. The the bank knows the appraiser that'll appraise it at 250. They know an accountant that'll lie about the guy's income. This all happened in 08. And so they get a fraudulent income statement because the bank officer is getting a commission on this. You know, he's, he gets paid by volume mm-hmm. from the bank, which you should never do because it introduces this kind of moral hazard. But that's what was policy at the time. They were allowed to do that by FDIC, by government, a failure of government. Okay, but it was going on. Okay, the person moves into their house, never makes a payment. Uh, it takes them two years for the foreclosure process to throw them out, and now they're out in the street. So the question is, who is the victim? Now, the immediate financial victim is the shareholders of the bank. That ba- that house gets resold for 150000 in a crash or something, and they lose $100,000. Is the borrower a victim? Uh, he's certainly not a party to the fraud, like the loan officer was, the the appraiser was and the um, accountants were. They were all party to fraud and they should have all gone to jail. And if Bill Black, I don't know if you know him, had been sure. prosecuted, they, there would have been hundreds of thousands of those guys in jail where they belonged. But instead, you know, they weren't touched. And that, that, and that introduces even more moral hazard. The next cycle, when you know nobody got touched for doing that cycle before. That's, so, but anyway, I'm getting sidetracked. But, you know, I, it's hard to say that the buyer who never made a payment and lived for free for two years, never paid taxes or anything, was a victim. I'm not saying they weren't or that you can't make a case for it, but it's it's certainly the more difficult case to make. Hmm. Okay. All right. Um, okay. Uh, let's move on to patron questions, if I may. Mm-hmm. Um, and let's just go straight through. Uh, you, you gave me a very nice surprise where you 
responded very quickly with the answers. I was not expecting yeah. that. It was pretty cool. Um, so let's just go straight through. I'm going to let's let's uh, and you you know I assume you have your document or your or your email where you can kind of I, remind I don't, yourself. but you but you do you you have, you can even answer it for me. Okay, well there you go. I don't even need you anymore. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, <laughs> no, uh, all right. So, all right. So the first one is from Nathan Becker, and I just interviewed him. It's a written. It's my first written interview, which is kind of cool. I, I look forward to releasing that. Um, he is all on board MMT. He is skeptical about. He is he disagrees on one element, and this is his question to address that. Um, Nathan says. While it is true that the federal government is a net interest payer and higher interest rates would lead to government paying more in interest income, isn't it also true that the majority of Americans do not hold government debt as an asset that would earn them higher income, but hold mortgages and other debt instead, which have a negative impact? Today I talk with Warren Mosler about how his ideas for MMT partially came from a love of tinkering 
and more broadly, a desire to understand complex systems. He starts by talking about how, at the age of eight, he unknowingly built the fundamental elements of modern computers using nothing more than wires, batteries, light bulbs, and soup cans. As an adult, he built race cars driven by professional drivers. He also designed and prototyped a 60-passenger ferry that was built and is still in use today because it's much more durable and efficient than what came before it. We then talk about what came between when he played chess and bridge during high school. Like economics, these games are purely man-made systems of rules, which are decided on by a collective. Unlike economics, no game is used as justification to craft or not craft, policy desperately needed by millions. Warren talks about how he chose to learn the rules of these games thoroughly and to play them very well, but not dedicate the time required to reach the top echelons of professional players. Towards the end of today's episode, Warren gives his detailed view of the causes of the OPEC oil crisis, which he witnessed firsthand while searching for his first job fresh out of college. Next week in part two, Warren answers several patron questions, and we end with a very interesting discussion about the poor interface between government and its citizens and the possible causes of it. If you like what you hear, then I hope you might consider becoming a monthly patron of Activist MMT. Patrons get super early access to almost every episode, and they also get the opportunity to ask my academic guests questions like next week. And they support the development of my large and growing collection of Learn MMT resources, among other MMT things. To become a patron, you can start by going to patreon.com slash activist MMT. Every little bit helps a little bit, and it all adds up to a lot. Thanks. And now, on to my conversation with Warren Mosler. Enjoy. Enjoy.